Welcome to worship from Creef Parish Church on what is a rather blustery day. Whether you're watching or listening online or listening over the phone, it's good for us to, to come together week by week as the family of faith here in Creef and to gather with others from further afield to bring the events of this last week and our anticipation of the days of the week ahead to lay all of it, to lay all of our lives before our loving Heavenly Father in this our act of worship. So we come, for now is the time to worship. Worship. Oh, come. 
Let us pray. Gracious God, we come to declare your goodness and to celebrate again the awesomeness of your love and the wonder of your grace. Though we fail you, you never fail us. Receive our thanks. Undeserving though we are, you have shown us mercy, accepting our feeble faith and our hesitant discipleship, understanding our weaknesses, putting our faults behind us and helping us to start again. Though we fail you, you never fail us. Receive our thanks. However much we fail you, however far we wander from your side, you continue to seek us out and lead us forward. Your patience is never exhausted. Your love refuses to be denied. Though we fail you, you never fail us. Receive our thanks. We offer so little and yet you give us so much. Our love is so weak and yet you respond so richly. Our faith is so small and yet you bless us so constantly. Your generosity towards us is far beyond our deserving. And though we fail you, you never fail us. Receive our thanks. Gracious God, your grace defies expression. It's too wonderful for us to ever understand. And yet it goes on being real day after day. Gratefully we praise you and joyfully we celebrate your astonishing love. And though we fail you, you never fail us. Receive our thanks. This we pray in Jesus' name, who taught his friends to pray together, saying, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Last Sunday, I referred to the maps I found as a child in the back of my Bible and how they only really made sense when I started reading through the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, Paul's letters, these things which spoke of the missionary journeys of Paul and his companions, some of whom were very faithful and stuck with him. Others, like John Mark, who was a bit of a New Testament Jonah, who, who ran away from God's call, who fell away at first, but who were eventually welcomed back into trusted positions. There are different journeys described in the book of Acts. After the first journey, which we looked at last week, there were two more significant missionary journeys which for the first time saw the good seed of the gospel being planted in European soil. And then Paul journeyed on to, to Athens and, and Corinth and Ephesus, three major cities in the Greco-Roman world. And then finally, there was a journey to Rome itself. However, before these 
very strategic and, and lengthy expeditions, there was a major theological issue which had to be resolved in order to preserve the unity of the fledgling Christian church. And the issue that had to be resolved in Jerusalem all these years ago is an issue that can so easily beset the church even today. Just to set the context, Paul and Barnabas had recently returned from their first missionary journey into Asia Minor and there in countries that had never heard the gospel message before, they encountered many Gentile people, Gentile pagans who came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And at the end of chapter 4, it tells us that they declared all that God had done with them and how God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So as we come to the book of Acts, to chapter 15, we come to a very defining moment in the book of Acts, in the story of the early church, in the history of the church. It was a moment that could have had devastating effects for the future of the early church, a bitter a debate had erupted over what Gentile believers needed to do in order to be saved and in order to, to be part of the church. How they were to be united to the community of Jewish believers that had begun the church and how the church and its leaders answered that question had the power to either preserve or strengthen the church or just see it totally unravel. So let's hear that story. It comes from the, the, the book of Acts, chapter 15. Acts, chapter 15. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you, that the Gentiles should hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, Listen to me. 
Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things. Things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses had been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus Oh, precious is the flow That makes me white as snow Oh, no other fount I know Nothing but the blood of Jesus Nothing but the blood of Jesus 
nothing but the blood of Jesus for my cleansing this my plea nothing but the blood of Jesus oh precious is the flow that makes me white as snow oh, no other fountain I know nothing but the blood of I wonder how you would sum up the core message of the Christian gospel. When we read of Paul, the apostle, on his missionary journeys, we know that there were periods when he spent considerable amounts of time in different locations, and there were occasions when he was able to speak at length about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there must surely have also been other chance encounters when he had to sum up the gospel in just a few words because he had a very short time with the person. The theologian Karl Barth is famously reported to have been asked to sum up the gospel in a sentence to which he responded, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And perhaps the, the clearest and, and the shortest presentation of the Gospel comes to us in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 16. These famous words, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Or again in 2 Corinthians 5, when the Apostle Paul is explaining Christ's sacrificial death on the cross and its effect, he writes these words, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's, there's a movie that came out in 1998. It's quite an old movie now for, for those of you who are, are younger. It uh, was a Steven Spielberg film. It had the title Saving Private Ryan. 
and it tells the story of eight soldiers who were fighting in World War II and having landed in a very brutal part of the war on the Normandy beaches, they were then sent on a mission to find a private called Ryan and have him sent home immediately. The reason for this mission is that Ryan was the youngest of four brothers and the other three had all been killed in the war within just a few days of each other. And to spare their mother the grief of losing all her children in the war, priority is given to finding Private Ryan and getting him out of the war. In the end, all eight soldiers who were sent on that mission gave their lives in order to save Private Ryan. And as Captain Miller, the leader of that little rescue party, in his dying last words to Ryan said, earn this, earn it. And so Ryan spends the rest of his life with this impossible burden, this impossible weight bearing down upon him as he tries to be worthy of the eight lives sacrificed for him. And the movie ends 50 years later. Ryan is an old man and he's still wrestling with his own unworthiness. And he begs his wife, tell me that I am a good man. That film, Saving Private Ryan, is a good illustration of the dilemma that had to be sorted out by the Jerusalem Council that we read in Acts chapter 15. You see, it had been assumed by many of the early believers that these Gentile converts would now be absorbed into Israel by circumcision, at least the men. But now something quite new, quite different was happening. It's something that disturbed and alarmed many of the Jewish believers in the church. For these Gentile converts were being welcomed into the fellowship by baptism, but without circumcision. And the point that was at issue was the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. We're told that a, a pressure group, we might call them members of the circumcision party, came from, uh, from Judea into Antioch and they came claiming the authorization of the apostles and insisting that without circumcision there was no salvation. In other words, faith in Jesus, they said, was not enough. Converts must add to their faith the act of circumcision. In a way they must let Moses complete what Jesus had begun. They must let the law supplement the gospel. Now, when Paul heard this, he was absolutely outraged by this contradiction of the gospel. Were Gentile believers a sect of Judaism or were they in fact authentic members of a multicultural church family? This was such an important issue that to decide on this issue, a church council was convened in Jerusalem. And so all sorts of members of the early church came together with James, the Lord Jesus' brother, in the chair. First, before that council, the, the, the Apostle Peter came and he reminded the council how through his ministry, Cornelius and his family had been converted and how they had received the Holy Spirit. The Spirit had made no distinction because they were Gentiles. And next, 
the council listened, we're told, with great respect to, to Paul and Barnabas, who gave an account of their missionary journey, the journey we considered last Sunday. And finally, we hear that James addressed the council himself, and qu he quoted from the prophet Amos. And it was the combination of the prophetic witness and the apostolic experience that convinced him. And so his, conv his conviction, his conclusion, was that they should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who were turning to God, but instead the Gentiles should be asked to respect Jewish consciences by abstaining from just four practices that had both a moral and a cultural dimension. Four practices which could inhibit fellowship between Jewish and Gentile believers. You see, the importance of this story is there is the same danger in the church today. It's not that Christ's sacrifice is denied outrightly, although in some parts it is. But rather more common is that Christ's sacrifice is denied whenever we add anything that requires our effort to be worthy of it. In the case of Private Ryan in the film, throughout his life he was unable to simply accept the sacrifices that had been made for him. And so the whole of his life was eaten up trying to be worthy of these sacrifices. In the book of Acts, the men who came to Antioch from Judea, they weren't denying faith in Christ, but they were adding to it. Believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour was the first step to being saved, they said, but it wasn't enough. Now these new believers needed to add to their faith the act of circumcision. Now they needed to keep the Mosaic law. For them it was grace plus circumcision, grace plus keeping the dietary laws, grace plus observing the Sabbath, simply grace plus. But to add any human effort to perfect what God has already done through Christ is in fact to nullify God's grace and make it of no effect. Later in the New Testament, we read Paul who wrote this warning to Galatian Gentile believers who were toying with the idea of law-keeping and adding that to their Christian faith. Paul said to them, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, you who have fallen away from grace. You see, the gospel is God's grace plus nothing. We are saved by the work of Christ plus nothing. We are forgiven and we are washed clean by the blood of Christ plus nothing. We preach Christ plus nothing. Again, as Paul wrote to the Ephesians in, in chapter 2 of that letter, for it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourself. It is the gift of God, 
not by works, so that no one can boast. When we try to add any work, any effort, any tradition, any combination, contribution of people to God's grace in order to win God's acceptance and earn merit in God's eyes, then what we have fallen into is legalism, trying to earn acceptance with God through our own efforts. And legalism is the absolute enemy of grace. Now, legalism can be attractive. It can come disguised as a deeper commitment to Christ. It can come using terms like being serious about our faith or living a life of no compromise or protecting the purity of the church. And legalism can be very appealing to our pride, making us think that we can be worthy of a relationship with God, even worthy uh, of Christ's atoning sacrifice if we do these things. And for many Christians today, legalism speaks in a voice surprisingly similar to Captain Miller. And it says to us, Jesus died for you. He paid the ultimate sacrifice for you. Now you need to go and earn this. Are you living a life that is worthy of Christ's death? Are you a good enough Christian to make his sacrifice worthwhile? And as Christians, and as some churches move away from the gospel of grace to the poison of legalism, when they begin to look to rules and prohibitions and traditions in order to promote holiness, what they're doing is allowing these things to control their heart rather than God's grace work and control the heart. These churches might not stop preaching grace, but they preach grace plus. Or it can be grace plus our traditions. Our denomination, we might think, is the one who've got it right. And so the traditions that we have known and the beliefs that we have held are essential to being a good Christian. Stuff and nonsense. Don't think this only goes for old denominations like the Church of Scotland, because new movements, new groups can have just the same pride of tradition, even if their tradition is only a year old and basically it's a tradition of bucking other traditions. Legalism is having a pride, a belief that we need these traditions and convictions. Traditions and convictions aren't wrong. Sometimes it's good for us to have these things. But the danger is when we elevate them to being necessary, to being saved or being spiritual. When our message becomes God's grace plus you see, the law of the Old Testament was never meant to be kept in order to be saved. That's not why it was given. The law 
was given to reveal our desperate plight as sinners. And it was intended to drive us to Christ. The Jewish people, they were never meant to put their trust in circumcision. They were meant to put their trust in God. And that would have positioned them to love and to trust Christ. You see, what God offers to us is grace. True grace, which actively works in our hearts, causing us to want to obey God from the heart, causing us to desire to glorify God with our lives and with our actions, motivating us to good works, not in order to earn grace, but as a response to the grace that God has shown to us. So in Acts 15, we are told that the believers in Antioch rejoiced and they were encouraged by the letter the council wrote that was brought to them by Paul and Barnabas and Judas and Silas. And we are told that these four men went on to encourage the believers and to pour into their lives even more of God's grace. And so the church was preserved from the ravaging effects of legalism and it was set free to enjoy grace, free and undeserved. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is grace plus nothing. Jesus' last words as he hung dying on the cross were not, earn this. His words were, it is finished. Jesus did it all for you and for me on the cross. And our faith is purely and simply in him and in what he did. Grace, pure and free. Grace, so undeserved. Grace, plus nothing.
Friends, the past few months have reminded us of the precious nature of human life and of our dependence in part on others for the sustaining of life. As we acknowledge this to be so, we recognise that ultimately the gift of life is a gracious gift given by God. And our ultimate dependence is on the giver of this gift. And in this, we are reminded of the fragile nature of life and the fragile creation of God and of our need to care for all that is gifted to us. In the midst of life, the life we share, God creates through Christ and by the Holy Spirit, a community in which we are affirmed as children of God and within this community, you and I are invited to name the living God, to share in the inheritance of Christ, and to receive, as Paul says in Romans 8, the Spirit of God. So as children of God, who have received the gift of God, we now pray. 
We praise you, living God, and we cry, Abba, Father, for you are the one who creates life and loves all that your hand has made. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We praise you, living Christ, and confess that Jesus is Lord, for you are the crucified and risen one through whom we have peace with God. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. We praise you, Spirit of the living God, and thank you that we are adopted as children of God, for you are the one who shares in all our struggles and inspires in us hope. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. And so we praise you, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, and we worship and glorify your name. We cry with all your people, holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Amen. Well, friends, thank you for being part of this worship time once again. I look forward to worshipping with you again next Sunday at 11. You can join us, as always, for a chat over coffee immediately after our service today or Wednesday morning, half past ten. It's on Zoom. Uh, congregation members have been sent the codes. If you need it again, please just ring the mans or send us a message. We'd love to have more folks taking part in that, uh, in that coffee and conversation time. It's good for the people of God to uh, spend time with one another. That's the way we can do it just now, so let's take advantage of it. So until we, until we meet, whether it's, it's chatting or a meeting during the week or whether it's uh, in this service time next Sunday, may the blessing of God, the ever-present Father, the ever-living Son, the ever-active Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you now and always. Amen. <laughs>